crawling round the darkness of the seething vital dungeon, pushing past the prisoners of the listless tapping senses, clinging to the weapons of the coffee wake me language. Stabbed by the guitar twang, defeats to the end, to the bass. Cringing at the crooner, vying with the trumpet, glaring at his partner, he jives with the rest. Making for the exit of the sweating mothered cellar, breaking off the fanship of the writhing nights of going, hating all the throbbing and the skipping blues of sadness. Defeated by Cat's jazzitude, rocked by his soul, perplexed by his query, and hurt by his hops, losing all his coolness, fleeing from his haven, searching for an answer, he rolls to the end. The Beatles' words are very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Nine, eight, seven, this is roll 29. 29. Three, two, one. Don't operate under these conditions, boy. You know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent, the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Welcome back once again to January 8th, 1969, Season 5 of The Wad Pod. This is part two of what has turned into a three-parter, where we eavesdrop on the Beatles, well, three of them, developing George's song, I Me Mine. We'll rejoin them shortly, but first, well, you know what comes next. A really great podcast series produced by the BBC World Service, 13 Minutes to the Moon. Series 1 tells the extraordinary story of Apollo 11 and Series 2 takes you through the edge of the seat story of the near disastrous Apollo 13 mission. Excellent production values and very entertaining and informative. So check it out if that's your thing. A very big thank you to those kind WOD fans who left something in the tip jar at buymeacoffee.com. So to Brendan Kelly, Chris Dolan, Dominic Whiteland, Mark S and Kent Sparrow, your support is incredibly appreciated. 
If you'd like to show your support for the podcast, go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash wodpod, W-O-D-P-O-D, and leave a message and a tip. It's not a subscription, just a one-off contribution. No obligation at all. Let's have a quick recap of episode 42 before we return to the Nagra tapes. As the tape starts, George is showing John and Paul how to play a new song. Paul has returned to his bass from the piano. George shows John the harder chords by showing him where to put his fingers rather than naming the notes. As Paul asks to run through the song a couple of times, George turns his attention to Paul to teach him the chords instead of John. Paul asks George to go through it again slowly. While this is going on, Ringo has decided what he will play. He jokingly taps out a waltz beat. This worries George, but as soon as he counts in the song, Ringo plays the ideal drum part. It appears that a bored John has heard the beat and got up to dance a waltz with Yoko. Paul comments, I don't know how to waltz. George likes John and Yoko's waltz. He says the song is so easy John could do that instead. Paul suggests they do the waltz in the white bag, referring to a recent stump that John and Yoko did at the Albert Hall last month. Paul and George continue working on the structure of I Me Mine. Progress is quick. Three Beatles seems to be more efficient than four. George would like someone to play castanets. Ringo asks if they have any. Paul is inspired by George's tune. He sings some cod French, sounding like Edith Piaf. John can be heard singing along with George only semi-seriously. George replies to him, Can you dig it? over and over, and then repeats, I me mine like it's a kind of mantra. Another run through, and John is harmonising in the background, more constructively now. Paul, again buoyed up by the song, sings a scat vocal in a falsetto, much like the Swingle Singers. As George asks Kevin for more cigarettes, one of his many jobs, Yoko can be heard talking to Michael about something like TV number 20. The relevance of this should become more clear in the next section of tape. John, impatient as ever, asks if the others have got it yet. George says they'll do one more and see if there's a part for John, so it's clear that John doesn't just want to dance all afternoon. After discussing the counting, the tape cuts to the end of the song. A bored John is yawning as Paul offers George two alternative notes to end the song on. Next, they work on the transition from the verse to the flamenco bridge. Ringo offers a cymbal part, which will make the final recording. Ringo is being much more collaborative on George's song, mainly because George doesn't dictate his part like Paul does. Glyn must be close by. George suggests he play castanets. But Paul reminds him that Glyn will be in the sound booth on the night. Paul again, fired up by the waltz, breaks into the 50s hit song Domino and comments that this will look good in the rushes. George is in the background discussing I Me Mine with Ringo. He feels it's a better contender for the live show. In the next available run-through, we can hear John has been given a lead guitar part, which he plays with an interesting overdriven sound. It's a good idea, but not one that will make the final cut. With the song only partially completed, George wants to move on. This is typical of his lack of assertiveness. Paul asks John if he wants to carry on dancing. John says he doesn't want to carry on waltzing all afternoon. So Paul moves to piano to teach him another song. And this is where we rejoin them. I'd like to learn a few chords. Yeah, I'll go for the 
to the piano to demonstrate the long and winding road. The mics have been turned up hence the increased background noise. As usual Paul has a melody but few words. tape cuts. Not sure what the sound crew are doing, but we can neither hear Paul properly nor the conversation of anyone else, so this section of tape would be unusable in any commercial sense. Tape cuts. This is roll 83, slate 158 continued. There was no sync on the end of the last roll. What we have here is a discussion between John and Paul. John is asking Paul to write the chords down. And Paul is saying, oh, it's really quite simple. Let's split it all over. 
the distinctive voice of Lennon being mocking again. The mics finally catch up with Paul. John starts to play with the words. The long and winding watch. Guaranteed to last long. Dip it. Smash it. Cook it. Break it. Blood. Sand. George joins in. Ink, blood, bones, marrow. Biological action. The parody has shifted from a watch to one about detergent. Interesting how George joins in with John when he's lampooning Paul's song. Okay, says John, taking a leaf from Michael's book and spelling what he wants. He starts to spell chords, but quickly goes off-piste, throwing in random letters. He adds, what K-E-Y-S? George asks, are we doing this one? Paul just wants them to learn the chords. Tape cuts. Some time has passed. It sounds like they want to go back to rehearsing I Me Mine. George says he doesn't mind. Paul, half-jokingly protesting, if that's your sincere opinion, so like let it be, it sounds like John and the others have rejected this song too. Paul plays a tiny bit of his misremembered okay. adagio for strings. He does the two finger boogie. Come on, you've got to dance though. John's saying to George, get on with it and don't stop till you've got it. George retaliates, but you've got to dance though. It all seems a bit abrupt, but I'm sure this is just banter. <laughs> this was what started their career in dancing. The halls all over the world have seen anything like the Are you sure this isn't copyright or something? They can't get you for doing that, can they? George wonders if his flamenco-esque intro might be copyrighted, but it really has no connection to any real flamenco tune or dance. Okay, one second, please. Just you may have heard during the long and winding road, Ringo had a squeaky drum pedal. He asked for a second to oil it. Oiling. Oiling, baby. Yeah. Uh, is this on echo? Yeah. So exciting. It is new developments. Negatronics. George wants to play more quietly. George and Paul like the Binson echo effect. We can't hear it as well as they can. Our feed is going directly to tape. Paul quotes George's first solo composition, Don't Bother Me. This inspires George to play a little of the guitar part. He then relays his story of how the song came about. Don't bother me. 
John talking about the tremolo effect he got on his guitar for that song and the strange chords as he puts it. Behind Paul improvising something you can hear George telling the story of how his medicine when he was ill in 1963 must have had amphetamine in it and how his fellow Beatles drank it and got high. I remember that on my sick bed in Bournemouth. <laughs> Although he was forever labelled the quiet one in the band, George Harrison had his own loyal fan base. Despite the dominance of Lennon McCartney throughout their career, they still felt it was good for them to let George sing the occasional tune for the fans. Initially, his contribution was relegated to cover versions like Chains, Devil in Her Heart, Roll Over Beethoven, etc. But occasionally he'd be handed a second tier Lennon McCartney original like Do You Want to Know a Secret or I'm Happy Just to Dance with You. As Paul relates, A lot of girls were mad on him, so we always wanted to give him at least one track. Then George started to catch on saying, why should you write my songs? And he started writing his own. George's first attempt at writing a song wasn't anything more than something to pass the time. I wrote the song as an excuse to see if I could write a song. I was sick in bed. Stuck in his hotel room at the Palace Court Hotel in Bournemouth on August 19th, 1963, feeling run down with his bandmates drinking the amphetamine laced tonic that he'd been prescribed, he got out my guitar and just played until the song came. Bill Harry, founder of the Mersey Beat and longtime associate of the Beatles, relayed that he used to pester George repeatedly to become a songwriter like John and Paul. He would ask George if he'd written one yet whenever he would run into him. According to Harry, this persistent questioning led George to title his first song, Don't Bother Me. Though George would state that the title was to do with how he was feeling in that Bournemouth hotel room. He felt low and wanted to be left alone. Initially, the song was completed and that was that. He wasn't particularly pleased with the results. It was a fairly crappy song. I forgot all about it. He can't have forgotten about it for long, however. During a recording session at EMI on September the 11th, 1963, Don't Bother Me was committed to tape the last of five songs tracked that day. At around 9pm, they taped four full band recordings, including the Finnish master chosen as best, despite George audibly complaining during the intro that it's too fast. However, Unlike the attitude of the band to his later songwriting efforts, the rest of the Beatles were keen to experiment on the recording to get a different sound. A melody maker journalist present on the day wrote, When they had arranged the opening bars, John produced a fuzz box. John was knocked out with the result, but George Martin wasn't too happy. In the end, the maestro fuzz tone pedal was discarded but an unperturbed John dialed up the tremolo channel of his Vox amp, which added a stuttering rhythmical effect to his guitar. So as far as we know, this was the first time any electronic effect was added to the guitar sound on a Beatles recording. Don't Bother Me was in fact a perfect fit for the albums it graced with the Beatles and Meet the Beatles, both of which sold in their millions. 
not bad for a first attempt. And uh, the doctor gave me some some tonic, which must have had amphetamine or something in it. Remember, and you all drank it to get high. It just gave got you. Also relates the story of how he met some fella at the traffic lights who remembered him from Gambia Terrace, Royston Ellis, who sold him his first drugs. He's loosened up from being cagey about pep pills earlier. Well, I met some fella, well, at the, at the traffic lights in a car, saying, hi man, I'm Royston Ellis, Gambia Terrace. <laughs> Gave you your first drugs. All credit for this bit must go to the book Riding So High, The Beatles and Drugs by Joe Gooden. From Georgie's description, the some fella he met at the traffic lights is Royston Ellis. When Ellis met the Silver Beatles, as they were then known, he was a mere teenager but was already touring England giving poetry readings, often backed by whatever local jazz or rock and roll bands he came across. It was while searching the Liverpool coffee bars for a suitable group to help him perform his rocketry, as he termed it, that he made the acquaintance of Alan Williams. Williams was a local promoter who had just begun managing a local five-piece beat group that had just returned from Scotland backing singer Johnny Gentle. As luck would have it, a member of that group, 17-year-old George Harrison, happened to be visiting the bar at that moment. Keen to get a booking for his band, he befriended Ellis. With a view to introducing him to the rest of the group, Harrison took Ellis to a rundown flat on Gambia Terrace where he had just recently moved along with John Lennon, Stuart Sutcliffe and Rod Murray. Among the sleeping bodies on the floor of a room dimly lit by lamps draped with red gauze was Lennon. John was immediately intrigued by the artistic and far more successful Ellis. Aside from touring his poetry, Royston Ellis was writing a book, The Big Beat Scene, and had appeared on television. John bombarded Ellis with questions about the music scene and life in London. The Gambia Terrace residents offered Royston a place to crash and he stayed with them a few nights. Later that month, the Silver Beatles backed the poet for a performance at the Jacaranda, and it was after this event that Ellis back at Gambia Terrace, introduced George and the others to their first drugs. As George later recalled, The big thing with Royston Ellis was that he discovered that if you opened a big inhaler, you find there was benzedrine in it, impregnated into the cardboard inside. We cracked open the Vicks inhaler, ate it and sat up all night until about nine o'clock the next morning, wrapping and burping up the taste of the inhaler. Lennon was immediately hooked. Everybody thought, wow, what's this, and talked their mouths off for a night. True to form, Paul McCartney was wary of experimentation. You're supposed to stay up all night and talk. Well, we did that anyway. I don't remember. Probably they didn't give me that much. Probably they kept it for themselves. Also, I was very frightened of drugs, having a nurse for a mother. Perhaps George has jogged John's memory of these Gambia Terrace Benzedrine Field nights. In 1973... Lennon wrote a letter to the International Times. By the way, the first dope from a benzedrine inhaler was given to the Beatles, John, George, Paul and Stuart by an, in retrospect, 
Ellis commented rather disingenuously, judging by George's comment today, that he recalled the event only later when I read the letter in the International Times from John Lennon about he and Paul, Stuart and George backing me, that I recalled it happened. George counts in another run through of I Me Mine. We're now getting Glyn's feed direct to two track. It sounds good. John loves Ringo's Phil. George changing the freely line. He's not sure of. George asks to do it again. Ringo agrees. John sarcastically says he's living for the day. George retaliates. I don't think you're dancing right, John. He then directs John where to put his arm. John realises his error. Yoko is amused by this new way of moving. Paul says, imagine it's the last waltz. John counts the steps then says, we'll have it off on the day. So the plan is for them to do it in the show. When I hear you say, it's okay. I don't okay. think you're dancing right, John. I think you should. Step the last waltz. Actually, it's Yoko he's talking to about moving her arm, probably to John's shoulder. Through the day, I mean mine. I mean. George counts off another run through. One, two, three, one, two, three. As they finish, Michael approaches. He loves the waltz. Are you going to do that in the show? John says yes. Paul jokes, in a white bag. Yoko says... Is that visual enough? Paul likens it to the BBC TV ballroom dancing competition, Come Dancing. Michael says it's very Brechtian, a reference to the Beggar's Opera by Kurt Weill and Bertolt Brecht. Michael has a name for the show, January 20, 1969. This indicates the date he's planning to film. It also makes sense of Yoko's suggestion to call it TV20. More resigned than usual to the idea of using Twickenham, he now suggests every song has a theme or character as he puts it. The waltz is the character of I Me Mine. 
and presumably he's referring to Paul doing a romantic ballad to the audience. I think really it should be like called January 1969, and that every song has got a character, like that's the character of that one, and like there should be a romantic ballad which you might do to some of the audience, or something like that. It should be complete around thing, and I put it badly, but I'm actually going to think about it in here now. John replies to Michael asking if they understand, with a cryptic, round the horn and avocado pear. Round the Horn was a popular comedy radio show at the time. Behind the bass playing and audio slate, Michael is laying out his vision, each song with a different theatrical presentation in the Brechtian sense. Surrounded by the audience like the Hey Jude promo or even the Elvis special. Do you understand? Round the Horn with an avocado yeah. That That was 159 take well, one, coming up is 160. Yeah, I think, like, you should have audience, like, in three quarters and a stage and Camera A. Yeah. That's it. And, and each number will be treated different, but the enemy, this should be like rock and roll, and it should be like ballad, this should be a song that you cry in. This should be, it should be very theatrical. In the Brechtian sense. You know what I mean? It should be very economic and very theatrical, I think, with, with a three-quarters house just around you. Or even a full, even a circular, and you're just in the middle of them. The glimpse is okay sound-wise. We put everybody all over the place. Paul correctly comments the audience would absorb some of the echo, which is true. They would have known this from the cavern, the echoey walls dampened by the massed bodies in the crowd. Michael is compromising for now. If we're not going to do what I want to do, He's now suggesting how to stage it at Twickenham. John comments, it should be called Wolf Dung. I'm not sure what he's on about. Michael indulges him. They'd act as a sound buffer, as it were. Well, I think if we're, if we're not going to do what I myself, that's nice, think is the best, then I think we ought to do it just simply. Just get a stage here in the middle, put audience all around simply you, and then... called Wolf Dung. Called Wolf Dung. Dung. 1969. <laughs> Paul makes a gesture. Michael asks him to do it again later for the cameras. Feeling he has some buy-in, Michael looks for some confirmation from the Beatles. Paul is sarcastic. He then jokes that they've missed his gesture again. Tony Richmond interjects. Les Parrott has got it both times. Michael seems pleased. Oh, that's, yeah, we missed that shot. Can we get that again later? Get that again when I do it spontaneously a little later. What do you think about that? And then that if we if we get ourselves a stage, oh, that's a very exciting idea. Just did the second time now. Yeah? No, we got it for the first time. You got it. What on? <laughs> hey, Les, you get that thing there. Sure, of course you do. Bloody hell! Michael is explaining his vision again, but the Beatles seem unimpressed. Michael wants something like "Good Night," Ringo's song on the Beatles album. For the end, Ringo comments, "Nothing like the standards." He wants a big tear-jerking finale. He asks for buy-in. John agrees, but then he realises why. He wants Michael to stop talking. I think the thing to do is just put you all in a framework, which will be just like the audience on the stage. And that by the time we get to the stage, we've got a routine of numbers. that we can find each number, how they fit theatrically, like your dance for that one, like the song that you cry in, and the song that you do that brings tears to everybody's eyes. It, it, seriously, I mean, almost we should end with... Almost, almost we should end with 
Good Night, whatever song is going to be like Good Night this time. Nothing like this Anders. You know what I mean? I mean, and the end of the show should be a tearjerker, like Hey Jude, or like Good Night, or like, or like something else. I hope you don't mind. How are we voting for that? Yes. And, and the back of it is a... Yes, all right. Just sod off with it. Yes. Once again, Michael stating the title of the show, January 20th, 1969. Though John jokes about it being much later than that when it's finished. And then you got a big sign on the Black Sykes saying January 20th, 1969. And back there says January 20th, 1969. Because that's all it's going to be. And it's the 19th of Feb, 1982. <laughs> No, even though you do it over three days. I mean, that's all it's going to be. It's going to be like you all on a stage with an audience on one night in everybody's communal life, and that's what the show is. And we will find how to treat each number differently. Yes! John shouts yes to get rid of him. Paul asks about the audience. John offers his surrealist opinion. Michael wants the first 1,000 people who show up. Because we seem to be rejecting the richer ideas, and I think therefore we go back to the simplest idea. What do we have as an audience? Then? A Human group beings. of pastry cooks from Walton-on-Thames. Human beings, and it's the first thousand you up. <laughs> Tape cuts, not much time has passed. going to be anyway. Yes, but I, I think it should be with just the signs. Instead of saying the Beatles since January 20, 1969. Yeah. And we, we, we can have voices over saying now Paul sings a song of true love. <laughs> oh, true love again, my favorite song. You stole into my heart like a creeping gnome. I mean, I still like it. Well, I'm pretty good. It's like a melody. True love. Like a melody. Like a melody. That sounds fair enough, Michael. Paul is okay with that suggestion. Michael has a suggestion for voiceovers. He mentions True Love, which he says is his favourite song. Paul obliges with a brief rendition of the Cole Porter song. While Michael refers to a song John has already parodied, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody. John pretends to mishear it as malady. True Love is a song made famous by Bing Crosby, accompanied by Grace Kelly, in the musical film High Society. The Cole Porter song, backed with Well Did You Ever, also by Porter, was recorded in 1956 and released in August of that year. The song has a Beatles connection. George Harrison released a cover of it on his album 33 and a Third in 1977 and as a single. But a little known fact is that John Lennon borrowed the phrasing and metre of the opening lines for his own song Good Night in 1968. Paul appears to approve. Michael is unsure if he's being serious. Paul reassures him discussing how the seating will be. It's the closest they've got to a concept for the show, but only achieved by Michael backing down, for now. Paul suggests putting cameras in the gantries. Michael says it won't be intimate enough. Are you, are you putting me, is it on or down again? I never know which. 
so where do you put the audience? Like on the Colosseum around us? Yeah, either three quarters or 100% around. Actually, you could build this place great like that if you built. And it's all made raked, it, all it's of raked it. up. It's raked up. All of it, like a Colosseum. Yes, I mean up there as well. Four sides. Mm. But then on the top of it all, your cameras on things. On we, it, it's not intimate or enough. Or a camera. Oh, our, our camera. On the top. I think what we're probably going to have is a film camera there, which will then convert to tape. But I think on the but floor... But like him, on the, on the track, being able to go right round this. Exactly, Mary Louise, exactly. But we've got to have that on us. Paul suggests a track going round the audience for the cameras. And he's quite enthused by this. In a four-letter way. I mean, I still don't think that is our best idea. He says on record and on tape. Michael would like it noted that he would still prefer the amphitheater. Glyn chips in. You could still make it torchlit. I'm not sure about the fire risk of that. Michael parks the torchlit idea for now. But I think if that's what we're going to do, it will be fine. It just won't be. <laughs> But it'll be fine, because I'll make it fine, you'll make it fine. Yeah, you can still even have it torchlit. Torchlit, no, torchlit is for next time. It's a bit like Around the Beatles. Paul's only reservation, it's a bit like repeating Around the Beatles. Michael here, referencing Elvis's TV special, which the others won't have seen yet. He says they're in competition with their previous TV shows. Paul thinks... They've only done three, but John interjects that they've only done Mystery Tour and Around the Beatles. Michael offers the Shea Stadium special. John doesn't think that counts. Ah, oh, yes, I was thinking about that. I mean, that was a, that was a very good show. And the only thing against it, that's why I think, that's why I think it should be kind of theatrical, is also the Presley show they've just done, apparently, which is he's just got a rather like an Around the Beatles audience. One of the one of the things we're up against is is all the past things you've done. It's only about three of them. Right? It's only about oh, three of them, wasn't it? It's around the Beatles. It's a Shea Stadium. Yeah, it's three. It was just a show. Well, so I mean, like, you know, actually, around the Beatles is our only ever TV show, wasn't it? Yeah. Where we like did it, and it, and it was good. Fantastic. Fantastic. Very good. You did that, didn't you, Glenn? You did the engineering. Michael and Glyn both like Around the Beatles. Michael points out Glyn's role in Around the Beatles. The penny drops with Paul about why Glyn is affiliated with IBC, where they recorded the music for Around the Beatles. I thought that's very good. That's what you're talking about, IBC. I get it now. background it must be George playing piano it's too accomplished to be Ringo the date 28th of April 1964 the time between 9 p.m. and 10:15 p.m. the place studio 5 AB at Rediffusion Studios Wembley Park London in attendance PJ Proby the Vernons girls Long John Baldry Millie the Jets Scylla Black Sounds Incorporated, and the stars of the show, The Beatles. Produced by Jack Good, already a veteran of pop TV production, and directed by Rita Gillespie, the concept of the show was to present The Beatles in a studio setting arranged as a theatre in the round. This seating arrangement was evocative of the Globe Theatre, home of Shakespeare.
It therefore seemed natural, at least to good, to get the Beatles into costume to perform a humorous rendition of Pyramus and Thisbe, the play within a play in Shakespeare's A Midsummer Night's Dream. Paul played Pyramus, John Thisbe in wig and blackened teeth, George Harrison was Moonshine and Ringo, ever the fall guy on all fours, dressed as Lion. They were kept on track by guest actor Trevor Peacock taking the role of Quince. Peacock would later be no, 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 known for the sitcom The Vicar of Dibley. Although recording was done in a brisk hour and a quarter, the Beatles arrived for their final rehearsals at 11am, having spent the previous day in dress rehearsals. For their second segment, the Beatles performed in front of the audience playing Twist and Shout, Roll Over Beethoven, I Wanna Be Your Man, Long Talk Sally and Can't Buy Me Love, followed by a medley of their earlier hits, Love Me Do, Please Please Me, From Me To You, She Loves You and I Wanna Hold Your Hand, before their finale, all taking a verse each in a version of the Isley Brothers' Shout. This performance, as with the others on the show, was mimed to a pre-recorded track. The music was recorded on the 19th of April at London's IBC Studios. Again, not strictly live, backing tracks were recorded in the morning and vocals after lunch. Bizarrely, track three of the three-track Ampex recordings was set aside for an evening session where an audience of young girls was invited to listen to a playback and scream and applaud on cue. Despite Glynn's association with IBC and Michael alluding to him being the recording engineer, it was in fact IBC's Alan Florence who captured the sound and IBC's manager Alan Stagg who served as de facto producer on this day. Glynn around this time had left IBC to pursue his own singing career which ultimately proved unsuccessful. That seems to be the only sticking point, that it's too much like around the Beatles. If you have it in the round, it's the only thing then, it's, it's a bit recreating. 161, camera A. I think, I, but I think kind of, with a sequence, I think with every idea we've, we will have, there's bound to be, and any of us can pick out a negative side to it. And I just think... Yeah, like, yeah, but it shouldn't be too heavy a negative side. Too what, darling? Heavy a negative side, lovey. <laughs> Paul and Michael camp it up a little. Michael blames his Californian upbringing. <laughs> I've brought up in California. You must, you must forgive these slips. I've brought up in Liverpool. Slips in these petticoats, what? Well, <laughs> what's everybody else think? Yeah, I think it's... That's the tune you played yesterday, which means you're not going to say anything. That's, that song always frightens me. <laughs> John was about to give his answer in the song. Michael tells him he always does that instead of giving an answer. John breaks into Sweet Little Sixteen by Chuck Berry, but with his own lyrics, listing English towns amongst others. The shocking in Gosford. The wrestling in May. The heart of Aquas. And artists pulled away. Granbury United. Castle on 
Continuing George's Spanish theme, John plays Malagueña, a style of flamenco dance originating in Malaga. This could be Frankie Lane's 1951 song, Flamenco, that he's playing. Oh, the bang or a, or a cry. But, you know, we intend to write a couple of rockers. Right, what, what if we see, see, I always think you should open, like, I think you should open exciting and end, and end, and end with the audience in tears. Michael wants a weepy ending. Paul, still optimistic, says, we intend to write something more upbeat. Conscious that all the songs bar two of us have been mid-tempo or slow. Aboard John continues the Chuck Berry theme with Almost Grown. Paul joins in, effectively ending the conversation. You know I'm doing a rhyme gives up and checks with the crew if this is being filmed. Are we alright on George's number then? If... Are we alright on George's number? I'm not. Are you? Should we keep doing it then a bit more? Paul brings the subject back round to I Me Mine. He wants to rehearse it more. John's Malagenia styling would actually fit. You know where Mal and Kevin? Kevin's just gone to get some tea and biscuits. Oh. Mal is probably skiving again. Paul asks after their two assistants who seem to have gone missing. George is cynical about what Mal is up to. Skiving, yeah. recalls a rock tune from the first day. Michael misremembers the song one after 909 as Route 99. John leads George and Ringo into a performance of Chuck Willis's What Am I Living For? George takes over on the vocal when John forgets the lyrics. Sure there was a, a near rocker you did on the first day that you've never done since. That's Route 99. <laughs>
Written by Fred J and Art Harris, What Am I Living For was released by Chuck Willis in March of 1958. Engineered by the legendary Tom Dowd of Atlantic Records fame, it has the distinction of being the first rock and roll record released in stereo. The Beatles, right up to this point, were still releasing singles in the mono format. Paul asked the band what song they did before Lucille. George offers All Shook Up. But Ringo remembers the one on your bass. This is almost certainly get back. But here the tape runs out, so we'll pick this back up next time. And that's it. If you want to support the show, you can leave a tip at buymeacoffee.com forward slash wadpod. That's W-O-D-P-O-D. You can also interact with me on the socials, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, plus my Gmail, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please like and subscribe and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. Thanks for listening and bye for now.